Let me invite you, if you have a copy of God's Word, to open with me to the book of 1 Timothy. We'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, looking at warnings, treasure, and eternity. As we continue on here in our third of a six-part series on generosity, our series called Open Hands. So let me invite you, if you would like to turn or you can follow along, we'll have the words on the screen, to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. There we read these words. As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasures for themselves is a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for the privilege and joy that it is to come and open your word and worship you through hearing your word. Father, I confess that this is a, a challenging passage even for me. Yet, Father, this passage is in your word as a grace to your people. So, Father, I pray as we hear the, the warnings of your word today, that by your spirit you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the reality of this text, that we would see the glory of Christ shining through, that we would take seriously the grace of this warning so we can eagerly live in the grace of salvation so that we can store up treasure and one day enjoy the grace of eternity where the riches of the kindness of your grace will pour over us for endless ages in a waterfall of never-ending joy and happiness and satisfaction in Christ Jesus our Lord. May Jesus be glorious to us today. May the moth-eaten, rust-dissolved possessions of this world that fade in a blink of an eye be to us just what they are. May we see them as gifts of your grace, yet tools to be used for your glory. Yes, Father, speak to our hearts in this time that as a result of being in your word, we may be conformed more to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. We may know him more and then use all that we are to spend and be spent for the sake of Christ's name being made known to all nations. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So many of us, I know for myself and probably you, are often dull to warning signs that we see out in the world around us. Normally we think that sign applies to someone else. That warning is not for me. For, for example, uh, back in the fall, I went up to Sleeping Bear Dunes, and uh, there's a sign there that says, it's a long way down, and it's a hard walk up, I'm summarizing. And if you need rescue, it's a $3,000 fine. Yet no one pays attention to that because all the live long day, people go down and walk back up. And of course, all of us think, well, if I get tired, there's like a hundred people around. I'm sure they'll help me up. That warning is for someone else and not me. And people just blow by it all day. 
That's how we think of warnings. We think that is for someone else. That danger won't happen to me. The reality is we often bring that attitude towards warnings and cautions to the Bible. We think that passage is not for me. It's warning someone else. But in this passage today, we dare not blow by it. Because this is a warning that all of us sitting in this room must heed. It's a warning graciously given to us by our Lord for the good of our souls. You see, this is a warning to the rich in the present age. And even if at times you personally struggle in the current economy in this country, there is no getting around the fact that globally and historically, we, sitting in this room, are the rich in this present age. This is especially clear if you include not only what money we have, but when you include your possessions, when you include education, and when you include access to vital items for life and care. We are the rich in this present age. And so there's a danger for us. There is a danger from our worldly wealth and prosperity and comfort. See, those things deceive us. They tempt us to turn to them for comfort, for security, and for meaning. You see, when we have earthly means to buy and to spend, to save and to sell, it's far too easy to look at all the things that we have and all the things that are around us and say, look at what my hand has done for me. And we neglect giving glory to God who is the giver. So we trust our stuff to meet all our needs and we turn our back on God. This is not a new problem. This was often a problem of the kings of Israel. The Lord would bless them. The Lord would make them strong and secure and then they would turn in pride and fall away from God. My friends, we need this warning today. So may God open our hearts to trust him and not riches. And so may we loosen our grip on the things of this world and grab hold of that which is truly life. So today as we walk through these three verses, we'll see that the hope of all that God is for you and me in Jesus releases us from the uncertainty and tyranny of money and frees us to live with joy both now and in all eternity. And we'll see this as we look at the faulty hope of money in verse 17, as we look at the fruit of Christ's word hope in verse 18, and then as we set our eyes to the future and look to the future reward of faithful stewardship. So the first thing that we see through God's word is that there is a faulty hope in money. Look with me in verse 17. Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, again, that's, that's you and I, when a large portion of the world's population lives on $2 a day, you and I are counted as the rich in this present age. Charge them not to be haughty or prideful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides everything for us to enjoy. So in this verse, Paul sets up for us a contrast between the fickle and fading hope of money 
and the solid and certain joy that we find in placing our hope in God. He begins by pointing us in verse 17 to the dangers of worldly wealth. And he points out two dangers for us, two ways that worldly wealth deceives us and turns us away from Christ. The first, he says, is the danger of haughtiness or pride, and the second is the danger of uncertainty to money. First, he begins. He says, charge. That's a strong word. He's writing to Timothy, who is giving leadership to the church in Ephesus, and he's saying, Timothy, go to the rich in that church and charge them, command them, warn them, encourage them, what? Not to be haughty, not to be prideful. You see, there is a spiritual danger in having money and possessions and wealth. This isn't new to Paul, right? Jesus said this himself. What did Jesus say? How difficult it is for the rich to enter eternal life, right? In fact, he said it's impossible. The reality is it's impossible for anyone on their own to enter into eternal life. But the good news is, the grace news for us is that with God, all things are possible. And so God, in his grace, gives us this warning of pride. You see, pride that wealth and possessions produces in us affects both our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationships with one another. On the one hand, vertically, wealth creates pride in us because it blinds us to our spiritual need and it tempts us to neglect recognizing God's provision in our lives. Because remember, as we saw several weeks ago on Psalm 102, I'm sorry, Psalm 104, everything you have, everything I have, as we saw last week in Matthew 25, is given to us by God. We are simply stewards of what he has entrusted to us. Yet when we have wealth, it's easy to forget that God is the giver. And, and so we can turn in our pride to comfort and security and seek it in our things instead of seeking that comfort and security in God. At the same time, while we can have pride toward God, and assume that we don't need him, forget that he is the one who's given us any wealth we have. Our wealth can cause us pride toward our fellow man, our fellow brothers and sisters, because we can look at those who don't have what we have, and we can say, you're lazy. You you don't work hard. You're just a beggar. And we look down on them, and we consider them worse than us. And so, We have pride, and so Paul warns us, don't allow pride and wealth to cut you off from God and isolate you from your fellow man. The second warning that Paul gives is not to set our hope on the uncertainty of riches. And this is a subtle danger that creeps into our hearts and minds when we have money. When the bank account and the 401k are doing good, when we can go out and eat dinner and buy groceries and buy gas and not have to worry too much about where the next bill is going to get paid from. We can set our hope in those things and assume that our comfort is in those things and assume our security is in those things, yet wealth is uncertain. On the one hand, it comes and goes, On the other hand, I'm sure you've felt this reality, we can never have enough. 
Because once you get a car that you wanted, you, you have to upkeep the car. Once you buy that house that you were hoping for, the toilet breaks and a tree falls on the roof. Or you decide you need different paint and different carpet and different kitchens. We never have enough. We always have to spend more on the things that we have. Because moth and rust come in and destroy. Thieves break in and steal. So this wealth is where we set our hopes is uncertain. I, I don't know that I really have to convince us of the uncertainty of wealth. Anyone sitting in this room that remembers the Great Recession of 2008 remembers how quickly fortunes can change. I would guess some of you saw your pensions or your retirement accounts dropping by the day during that time. That recession touched our own family. We thought we were financially secure. We were living the American dream. We had a mortgage and two car payments and student loans and a dog. And the recession hit. And Anna lost her job. And all of a sudden, we had a part-time youth minister, a part-time bookstore employee who was full-time in seminary, and that was all the money we had. Suddenly, that security was gone. You see, wealth is uncertain because one phone call can shake the foundation. That phone call could be, you're fired. We're having to cut back, and you're in that cut. That phone call could be, we got the test results back, and it's cancer. That phone call could be, hey, this is your uh, stockbroker. Things are looking bad. If one phone call can shake the foundation of your hope, it is an uncertain place to put your hope. See, wealth is uncertain. So what's the cure? What's the, what's the cure for this uncertainty of hope and wealth and the pride in wealth? The cure, God's word tells us, is to put our hope in God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I believe what Paul is telling us there when he says that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy is that God richly satisfies all of our deepest desires and longings. You see, money cannot buy that. Riches and possessions cannot touch the deepest desires of our souls. You see, we can make ourselves materially comfortable, and yet our souls wither away. Because we're more than bodies. We are also souls that will live on for all eternity. And our souls were not made to be satisfied by the things of this world. The things of this world were given to us to point us to the giver of all good things, to point us to God who satisfies our souls in Christ. Trying to satisfy the deep needs of our soul with our money and our wealth and our riches is like trying to get spicy taste out of your mouth with water. You eat a ghost pepper and your mouth is on fire and you think, drink water. You know what that does? It just spreads the spicy all down your throat. It doesn't do what you need. You need milk or bread. In the same way, our stuff doesn't satisfy our souls, but God does. You see, what we need to remember when we come to passages like this that, that touch on our wealth and our possessions is that God's not after your wallets. God's after your heart. God 
doesn't need your money, but God wants you to find healing in your soul, eternity in Christ. And the reality is, our hearts, the direction where they are, where our treasure is, is often indicated by our wallets and how we use our money. And so Paul warns us, not because he wants Timothy to go out and start a building campaign, but because he wants people's hearts to be captivated by God, and he knows, because God knows, that our money is often an indicator of where our heart lies. And so our hope comes not from the uncertainty of riches, but from the solid certainty of God. Our hope is to receive God who is unchanging, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, our money doesn't buy our access to God. Our money doesn't buy God's favor. It doesn't earn us a place in heaven. Jesus already purchased that. You and I don't have enough money to buy a place in heaven. Oh, but Jesus by coming to this earth and living a perfect life in your place and my place, the life we should have lived but never did, and going to the cross and pouring out his blood, dying the death that you and I should die for our sin but do not have to. He purchased his people for God and rose again in victorious life to give us his riches and glory to enjoy forever. As we read in Psalm 16, that in his He shows us the paths of life, and His presence is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the foundation of eternal, lasting hope. It is all that God is for us in Christ. And so when we place our hope in God and on the certainty of His character and His promises, we are freed to use our money and our possessions for His glory and for the good of others. And so that's the next place Paul takes us. He takes us to the fruit of Christ's word, hope. Verse 18. So he says, he says, listen, don't set your hope on uncertain riches. Set your hope on the unchangeable God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So how do we know we're doing that? What's the proof and fruit of that? He says they are to do good, to be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share. You see, as we hope in God, we are enabled by the Holy Spirit to loosen our grasp on the things of this world, to live with open hands and use the good gifts that God has given us for the cause of Christ. See, what what Paul is getting at here in verse 18 is not do these things and God will love you, but it is these are the actions and attitudes that flow from a heart that hopes in God. Because hope is demonstrated by actions and not merely our words. See, hope is a confident, certain expectation of what is to come. And when we truly have hope in something, we act on it. Because there's a confidence, right? I can tell you all day I want. I am confident that I can go out and run a marathon. But if I sit on my couch and never go try and run, you will doubt that I truly believe it. I can tell you I'm confident that my Jeep will get through the snow that we're going to have this afternoon. But if it sits in the garage and I never leave the house, is there any proof that I truly have that confidence? 
See, Paul is calling us when we are, have a hope and confidence in God, it shows itself through fruit, through visible, observable actions. And so here we have four commands to the rich in this age that are, in their essence, fruit of a heart that is united to Christ. The fruit that flows out of our actual hope and confidence in the goodness of God. When we live this way, when we do these four things, it shows that we actually believe that God gives us everything that we need to richly enjoy. So four, four things that Paul tells us. The first, in verse 18, he says, They are to do good. I think we could translate this. They are to be do-gooders. And then what does this mean by goodness? See, there's actually a different word here that Paul uses for good than he's going to in just a moment when he says be rich in good works. The word here where he says they are to do good is often used for God himself. So in Mark chapter 10, verse 18, right, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And what does he say? He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Now Jesus is making the point, if, if you're going to call me good and no one's good but God, well, I'm God. That's Jesus' point. So when Paul calls us to be good, to do good, he is calling us to reflect God's character in what we do. He's calling us to actions and attitudes that become a visible demonstration of the love and character of Jesus Christ to all the world. In other words, when he's calling us to goodness here, he's calling us to godliness. So one way that we show our hope in God and not in riches is that we live in godly ways. We should to live graciously, to live sacrificially, to live givingly, to live honestly. Second thing he says is to then be rich in good works. That is, do things, do actual actions that glorify God and benefit others. Personally, I think here, where Paul is calling us to be rich in good works, he is primarily speaking of works that put our money and our possessions, our worldly wealth, to use. The reason is because of that repetition of the word riches, right? So he says, For the rich in the present age, charge them this. Don't hope in the uncertainty of riches, but look to God who richly provides. And how do you know you're doing that? You are rich in good works. I think he's putting his finger on our riches. And he's saying, if you really trust God, you'll get You'll give of your money. You'll give of your possessions. And maybe that means that it's giving faithfully to your local church and the ministries there. Maybe it means you're giving to someone in your life group who has a pressing need. Maybe it means you're opening up your home to, to come in and, and host a life group or host some neighbors. Maybe it means you're, you're using your, your cabin to be a place of hospitality for others to be refreshed. I don't know what it means for you, but it means to be rich in good works that we use the the worldly wealth that God has given us to glorify Him and bless others. Because there's joy there for you and I. So then he goes on. He says, not only that, be generous. As we said a few weeks ago, generosity is the glad and sacrificial giving of what we have, our time, our talents, and our treasures, for the good of others and the glory of God. So when he calls us to be rich in good works, that means like, go, go do stuff. Go do good things that benefit others. 
And obviously then that means we're being generous. Because it's not just a, a writing a check blindly to someone, because I can do that. That happens to me. I can just write my check and give to the church and not ever think about it. Well, that's not quite a good work, is it? That's just a habit. It says, do that with rejoicing, and then be generous. Don't just do it, but do it sacrificially. Do it in a way that costs you. And then fourthly, he says, be willing to share. I believe when he calls us here to share, that, that word is the, the same word in Acts chapter 2. When we see this picture of the early church, right, and they've come together, and what do they do? They are committing themselves. They are giving themselves over to the teaching of the word, to prayers, to the fellowship. That's the same word here for sharing. That, that when Paul calls us to share, that means that it is loving our brothers and sisters in Christ in word and deed as if they are our own family. In other words, when Paul calls us to share, it's giving a visible demonstration of the spiritual unity that we have in Christ. It's looking at our brothers and sisters in the church and saying, God has given me this, in what way can I use that to meet a need somewhere else here among a brother and sister? Just as I would give kindly to my children or to my own sister who would have a need, how can I show our spiritual unity through my physical giving? That's what he's calling us to, to share. And as we embody these things, as we do good, as we're rich in good works, as we're generous, and as we're ready to share of what God has had and given us to the good of others, we model the love of God to the watching world. We picture that love of Christ who lived generously, who didn't count equality with God a thing to be clung to, but emptied himself and took on the form of a man and being found in the form of a man he became a servant and he humbled himself to death even death on a cross we we show the generosity of jesus as we live generously and openly to others and it shows a gratefulness in our heart to god it, it shows that we're not living just for the gifts but we're living for the glory of the giver of the gifts and, and so, bearing fruit in this way, bearing this fruit of hope in Christ, is a way to wisely invest in eternity. Because it shows that our hearts eternally belong to Jesus. And so we see in verse 19 that forsaking a hope in riches, humbling ourselves and hoping in God, living in a Christ-like, generous way in response to what God has done, sets up future reward for our stewardship. Look at verse 19. Paul says there, So do these things. Do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. Thus, that is, by doing such things, storing up treasures for themselves, as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You see, doing all of these actions that Paul has listed there in verse 17, store up for ourselves an eternal treasure. 
instead of using our wealth in the here and now to buy rusty moth food, we invest in treasure that will never fade, that as Peter says, is unfading, unperishing, undefiled, kept for us in heaven. That's what we're investing in. Not cars that break down and homes that need new siding and whatever else it is we can put our money in. It's an investment that will never fade. See, what, what God's Word is pushing us to grasp is that we invest our time and our talent and our treasure wherever our hope truly lies. Or it's as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. He says, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, again, this is a matter of our hearts. Jesus wasn't trying to get people to just give him stuff. Jesus wanted people's hearts so their souls could be saved for all eternity. And here's the glory of what Paul is saying. Here's the progression we see in this text, is that when we use what God has given us for his glory, what is spent and sacrificed here is making an investment for eternal joy. When we spend and sacrifice for the glory of God and the good of others, we are storing up a treasure. Like Paul says, we are making for ourselves a good foundation for the future. And look at this contrast that Paul makes here between the uncertainty of money and the certainty of God, between practicing stewardship and spending all that we have on this life. On the one hand, we saw in verse 17 that money is uncertain, that hope in riches is shaky and fickle and changing. Yet we see here that God is certain. We have a stable and sure foundation, verse 18. We see that treasure that is stored up here, moth and rust destroy, it's uncertain. Yet treasure stored up in heaven is eternal. It will be there. No one will break in and steal it. No stock market crash will take it away. No sickness will rob us of that eternal inheritance. No bankruptcy. No fire. No car accident. No insurance adjuster is going to come and take it. No repo man is going to come and take it back. It's an inheritance that cannot be lost because it is held firmly in the hand of Christ. And so what we see is that only in Christ do we find true life. So that's where this is going. Look at the end of verse 19. Why do we do all this? So that we may take hold of that which is truly life. What does that mean? Well, we know this. We know that money and, and, and riches can give comfort. We know they can give security. We know they can even give us significance and meaning. But it doesn't last. As we've said, it can all be lost in an instant. Yeah, those things are real, but they're fleeting. 
Yet in Christ, we have comfort and security and significance that's eternal. Taking hold of true, what is truly life means taking hold of faith in Christ. We see that actually in the very next verse. Paul says in verse 20, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit. It's an economic term. Entrusted to you. And what is that deposit? It is the gospel. It is the good news of faith in Jesus Christ. We see back in verse 6 of chapter 6 that Paul is speaking of godliness. He says godliness with contentment is great gain. To take hold of that which is truly life means to let go of the things of this world and cling to Jesus. Because that's what's real. That's what's lasting. Oh yeah, the things of this life are real. I can touch my house. I can touch my car. I can count my money. I can open up my app and see how my 401k is doing. But those things are transient. Listen, snow is real. You can go out this door today and grab yourself a handful of snow and you can feel it and it's there and it's cold and it's real and you can ball it up and make a snowball but walk around the rest of the day with that snow in your hands and what happens? Oh, it's real, it's there, but it melts and it falls away. It won't be in your hands anymore. It will be gone. Paul is saying that is what worldly wealth is like. Yeah, it's here today, but it's gone tomorrow. So take hold of Jesus. Grasp Him because He is eternal, because He is God. He will never fade, and He offers us a treasure that we'll never lose. And that treasure is life here and now, filled with joy, regardless of our financial sacrifices, regardless of our loss, regardless of if we don't keep our stuff, or we don't keep our health, or we go from the worldly rich to the absolutely worldly poor. We can give all we have, because for Him, with Him, it is eternal, and we will be secure, and we will have joy in His presence forever. You see, by His grace, Jesus changes our longings. He changes our desires. He changes our wants so that we don't want to cling to our worldly wealth, but instead we want to cling to Him. And we want to invest in all we have here and now for the future by spending and being spent for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of God, for the good of others, and for our joy. So we, we ask ourselves, what am I hoping in? Where's my hope? Is my hope in the uncertainty of riches or is my hope in the sure foundation of Jesus Christ? Where are you investing? What are you living for? Where are you storing up treasures? Because wherever that is, that's where your heart is. So let's have hearts that belong to Jesus. Let's heed this warning and let's use all that God has given us so that we may guard the good deposit of faith. And may the Lord grant our hope in Him to increase so that we can live with open hands, so that we can spend and be spent, so that we may know Jesus and make Him known to all people, and then enjoy Him eternally in His presence forever. Our Father, we love you. We thank you, praise you that you are the giver of all good things. 
You've not said in your word that to have wealth is bad. You've not condemned us, yet you have called us to turn from the deceit of false hope and to turn to hope in Christ, to assure and certain eternal hope. So, Father, I pray that you will help us to, to trust in Christ, to live with open hands, that we may thank you for what you've given us. Praise you for our daily bread. Praise you for our homes. Praise you for our cars. Praise you for our money. Praise you for our clothes. And yet then take all those things and invest them eternally in you so that we may know you more, so that we may be conformed more to Christ and so that others may know of Christ as well. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.